one of my favorite stories from um from Whitney was she got and she got all this she got all this flack for it. Um, she was doing a show this early '90s, and a fan walks up to the stage and is holding a photo because they want an autograph. They're holding it up to her as she's singing, and she stops the show and she looks down and she says, "Your your your ticket says seat, right?" <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So now, so so then it's all oh, well, oh, you know. Whitney's nice. a diva, and that's and that was how it was covered. Oh, she's a diva. Hello guys and welcome to another episode of Don't Let The Stands. This is season 8, episode 4 and you are here today with your host Eden McKenzie and... Chopper. And guys, don't fret, Nick will be here at some point during the episode. But, you know, as we explained in the last episode, we record this podcast whilst we do our daily jobs and all of the above. So we're just waiting for Nick to join the conversation. But guys, we have an exciting episode to come. We have a lot packed for this episode, so much so that we can't fit in the music section in this episode. Um, We have quite a lot to talk about. We have an interview coming later on and we will introduce that towards the end of our um, agenda that we usually go through. But first and foremost, Shopee, I'm going to ask, how are you doing? (sighs) Mm. I am very over it. Mm -hmm. Very, 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 very over it. Isn't there an album called that? Not one that I know. (laughs) <laughs> abolish ab- abolish capitalism however operating in the grace of silver linings operating in the mode of gratitude as i'm now 27 and there's no it is not productive to be pessimistic or negative or downtrodden and all those things so i'm just pushing through and choosing joy I hear that. The life is go. Today was go. Mm. Abolish capitalism and abolish the office. <laughs> okay, I feel you. Abolish working in the office. I'm say that again. Abolish mm. working in the office. We can I let it go. Yep, hundred percent, hundred percent. Productive is an interesting word to use when it comes to our emotions. It's just like we're so in this system of you know working nine to five that whenever we feel something, we say, "I feel this thing," but it's not productive, and that's just a very Sad way to like look at our emotions, but I get why the word was used because that's how we were kind of socialized to use it. I would say I'm in high spirits, but physically I am tired. Um, I am looking forward to the interview that we have later today. I know Chope has been very excited about this conversation. I have also been excited about this conversation. And there are quite a few things I feel really grateful for um, as April continues on. I mean, no, I'm not going to lie. April has been a mission like there's mm. just been back-to-back events mm. like going into the office and you know crowded platforms all of the above it's been really tough but at the same time like there's so much to be grateful for obviously Chopin turning 27 and us turning up for his birthday and you know just realizing how much love you're surrounded by but also you know it was really great seeing how loved Chopin was but I won't go into that um I also want to say a special shout out to Lucy, who was kind of sending love 
to the podcast is always tuning in mm-hmm. despite the fact that she's wrong about her opinions when it comes to find your love but we forgive her for that and um yeah i just want to say thank you because i realize that on this podcast i am very kind of vulnerable when it comes to um the journeys that i've been on when it comes to mental health and my own emotions and as i go through my own transition in life and kind of you know face some of those demons and come out the other side I've forgotten to kind of really, um, you know, talk about that journey and where I'm at. But I won't go into like full detail or anything like that, but I am in a good space. I didn't realize people were really checking like that who listen to the podcast um, after seeing kind of Lucy saying it's good to hear Eden's in good spirits and it's been so long or something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. Um, But guys, I've been on a very spiritual journey, I would say, um, back to finding myself, letting go of a lot of pain and hurt. And um, I don't think it's a coincidence that today's episode, we will be talking about someone in particular who went through their own journey, um, who has been battling a lot of demons and um, wasn't really treated in a way that was um, fair to her during her reign um, and during her life. So I say all of that to say this podcast is a space where we try to really investigate music in all of its facets and in today's episode we have an in-depth conversation that'll be happening about a particular pop star i don't know if i want to spoil it shopper should we say what we're talking about or should we wait until later on um let's wait let's wait okay we'll wait so yeah you'll probably know when you read the description and when it comes out and all the above but we're gonna have a great conversation about so many different topics inspired by one of the most influential voices to ever exist in this planet um but yeah, that's how I'm feeling. I feel spiritually high, physically exhausted, and I'm glad that I'm able to notice the difference and grateful to every single listener, as always. Like I said, no Nick today. So um, what we'll do is we'll leave a space open for the listeners, as always. So please feel free to pause the podcast and just do a self-evaluation. How are you feeling? Have you had something to drink? Have you had something to eat? How's your sleep schedule? All of the above. April has been busy. Has it been busy for you? Just do a check-in and just make sure you're okay as you listen to this podcast. Podcast. I'm going to pause you for literally five seconds. If you could rate this podcast five stars, you'll be helping us out in incredible ways that we wouldn't be able to describe. If you could also subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it helps us let the big guys know that we actually have an audience and we can continue to grow as an independent podcast and bring music culture to you on different levels. So please, guys subscribe and review the podcast love always we are now going to get into the news agenda we only have one topic today but i feel like it's quite a big one that could really and probably will end up leading to a lot of wider discussion Mm -hmm. so uh isaiah rashad so uh last week was coachella and i'm sure we've all seen various clips and footage of different artists and so isaiah rashad was on the bill and he took uh the time to use his set to use his time on the stage to arguably well i guess informally address uh the leaked sex tape that came out back in april which showed him engaged in uh relations if you will with two other men and of course that caused a massive frenzy on social media and of course people a lot of um allies friends um, industry people came to his support online 
But of course, there was a lot of concern about how he would have been feeling because this is someone who is who are a fan of his music. Um, he's been very vocal vocal about suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety. So being quote unquote outed like that, you can imagine, was very very devastating to him. But he, you know, and he had and he hadn't really made any statement or anything on social media. But he used this set to to address it. So. During his set, there was a montage that showed coverage of everyone's reactions to the leak. So DJ Academics, Joe Budden, the, the Game, Boosie, and all these kind of things. And then at the end of the clip, he thanked his fans for all the messages and declared that um, they've kept him alive these past couple of months. So um, yeah, that's that. So Eden, what are your thoughts? I can't imagine what that must have felt like as in regards to you know to be surprised like that um in such a kind of intimate moment that must have been awful and you know we talk about kind of social media and we spoke about it last episode about the way it's used and all the above and you can't help but kind of feel like you know whilst we can cast social media and all its ills um one of the benefits of the current generation is the way that we rally around people when it comes to their identity in some cases and you know there are some cases where it doesn't really work in their favor but especially in hip hop it's been very hard for a lot of artists to really embrace their identity and um i'm this is this could be an opportunity for Isaiah Rashad to really just lean into himself and continue on the path that he's currently on. I think, you know, it's awful what happened to him. And I just sincerely hope that he's surrounded by people who are showing him love right now, because I imagine the intention behind that move was to kind of, you know, ruin his career and, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. get people to stop listening to his music and all the above, but it actually had the opposite effect. So I'm intrigued to see if he'll do some kind of... um, some, if you if he will release something addressing it in terms of music and what that would look like for him um i feel like when artists are a lot more honest in their music that's when we kind of see an evolution in the type of music that they make so i'm quite intrigued to hear what comes from him next um but like i said what happened was awful and you know i'm just glad that he's surrounded by love and we're in an era where he can be supported and the opposite happened from what was att- intentionally done um by someone maliciously so yeah those are my thoughts so far it was a bit of waffle but yeah that was, those are my thoughts shopping mm. there's so many directions to look at this and I, I may not actually dive deep into this point but i will say that um the reaction i guess the direction that the person wanted to happen who leaked it may not have happened arguably because of isaiah's gender presentation and his uh masculine presenting self i'll st- say that there's, mm. that's, there's obviously a wider issue within that um but i will say that i'm very happy that he was able to do this and i'm happy that he took ownership of the situation and i'm happy that he actually didn't he addressed it but not directly addressed it like he didn't say anything like out of his own mouth about it and i love that he didn't feel the need or the pressure to actually let us know how he identifies mm. because we don't know. Yes, obviously he was caught in a compromising act in a, in a same-sex 
act, but he's still, you know, he's keeping that to himself. And, you know, he shouldn't be should be made to, even in spite of this leak, he shouldn't be made to now come out and say anything. It should be whenever he wants to, whenever he feels ready. Mm-hmm. But I am intrigued to see what this means for, you know, queer men and hip hop. And there has been actually a bit of a conversation about that these last year or so, obviously of Lil Nas X, but even Tyler, the creator, who's really come into himself as a, as a gay man, these last few, as these last, well, let me say a queer man, I don't know how he identifies, but I'm aware he's likes men. Um, Has he said that? Yeah. He said that publicly? Yeah. Okay. Um, and even there are songs on Igor, which are, he uses male pronouns. Um, you know, I, I've, I've heard him reference it even on um, Call Me When You Get Lost, mm-hmm. but I don't know if he's like said it in like an interview or anything publicly. Like, I know it's been referenced, but I don't know if he's actually said anything. So, Yeah. Um, but it's like even that too, then even like, you know, Kevin Abstract, you know, we are really seeing that. But Lil Nas X obviously is a particular outlier, a particular unicorn because he's extremely famous. He's not, you know, underground or niche or on the the sidelines of commercial hip hop. Um, but yeah, no, so it would just be interesting to see what the conversation around that is now going forward. And yeah, that's all I really have to say on the map. But I just think that also it was just very, 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 very disgusting that that happened to him. Nothing, no one should ever be made to be put on a spotlight like that in such an intimate moment because that was someone mm. who tried I'm assuming someone he trusted and yeah but yeah I'm very happy that he was he's able to just go on and live his life and so on and so forth so yeah. that's all I have to say well I just wanted to add to that and I'm trying to think of how to really say this without trying to take the spotlight away from Isaiah Rashad but I can kind of relate in a way to this situation um like one thing that happened during our break was um, I, somebody created a catfish of me on various dating apps. Um, and as a result of that, I got loads of people from different parts of the UK sending me information, their address, personal information. Um, and all the above questioning why we didn't meet up, you know, putting people in very vulnerable positions. Um, and as a result of that, I felt a lot of anxiety. Like um, I felt very scared about the fact that my face was being used out there in the world. But also um, for me, it just made me feel really sick at the idea of, you know, the way that those social medias were being used and that those dating apps were being used and how other people had to suffer as a result. So when it comes to, you know, the way that, you know, when it, I can, I can kind of empathize with what happened to Isaiah Rashad in a way, um, although it's not anything to do with like um, my sexuality in particular, but the way that you can be surprised by the way people use kind of your image on social media I can definitely relate to that. And it is scary. It's very anxiety inducing. Um, If you live with depression, it's something that can be triggering as well. 
Um, and Isaiah Rashad has spoken publicly about, you know, his battle with mental health and all the above. And I can't lie when I was going through that situation where um, I was getting loads of random people just messaging me like my my depression was definitely triggered as a result. So that that was basically to say we're sending our love to Isaiah Rashad. That that situation is just hard to navigate in general, but it seems like he's heading in the right direction with regards to how he wants to handle it. I hope TDE are kind of surrounding him right now. And um, I'm just loving the fact that we're at a place where the way it's being reported is he's getting support and love. Um, so yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Just quickly, just quickly, just quickly. all right cool so we're back and this is the interview section of the show we kept it very secret with regards to when we were recording our normal agenda but i'm going to let shope introduce our guest what we'll be talking about and just the general kind of discussion and aim of today's episode do your thing man so today we have a very special guest someone that i've been looking forward to speaking to uh a man whose work i've been reading for about six years or so now and yeah, so Garrick Kennedy, award-winning journalist, cultural critic, and author based in LA, former staff writer of the LA Times. His writing has also appeared in Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Men's Health, Playboy, GQ, and the like. And he's also been blessed to interview people like Mariah Carey, Janelle Monet, Elton John, Sam Smith, Kendrick Lamar. And he is also... The author of Parental Discretion is Advised, The Rise of NWA and the Dawn of Gangster Rap. And he has a new book out, which came out early this year, called Didn't We Almost Have It All in Defense of Whitney Houston, which is what we are talking about today. So, Garrick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That was such a lovely introduction. (laughs) (laughs) And now I feel kind of old. I'm like, oh, I've been doing this so long. Hey, it's your receipts. <laughs> and just to kind of set a visual for the listeners, Garrick is currently sitting here wearing a jumper that says R&B is not dead. So just kind of set you know, the yeah. theme. Sets the, sets the tone. Kind of sets the tone. Yeah, exactly. So people know what it's about. But Garrick, as Chope said, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I've had, I think we've all had like a great experience kind of just sitting here with this book and like, um, for me, I've learned so much about Whitney Houston as a person. Um, but to kind of introduce you to our show. So we talk about music and culture. We talk about it from various lenses. We, our tagline is we're a music and culture podcast with a marked focus on stand culture, but that doesn't necessarily limit our focus when it comes to what we actually talk about. So, um, Mm -hmm. we are... So Chope and Nick are music journalists. I'm not in the music journalist field. I'm also come from a perspective of how we relate to music um, and um, the kind of emotional aspect of it as well. So we're just really excited to have you because we wanted to have a conversation about kind of Whitney Houston and various other um, legends in general. And you were someone that came to mind immediately. Chope was very excited to have you in particular. So... Thank you so much for coming here. One of my um, favorite topics. So, you know, ask, <laughs> ask, ask me anything. And okay. mine too. And mine too. <laughs> yeah. No, so, literally, um, when I saw the book was announced, I was like, I want him on the podcast. Yep, he did. Yep. 
all true literally got the message he's saying we're getting this person on the podcast <laughs> nick and i were just like cool yeah no questions asked let's get it sorted and thank you so much for being here so just to kind of let you know what we do and how this will kind of be formatted we so between all three of us we ask questions and we kind of just go through a conversation just to kind of see how it flows and all the above but we've got some questions we've written down um and we'll kind of just go from there so if you're all good to go we'll just kind of shoot some questions at you yeah. and all of the above yeah let's do it. cool Sharpe, do you want to go first sure will so before we get into this lovely book let's get into a bit about you so where did your love of music originate from and how did that eventually translate into the worlds of journalism, writing and criticism? Uh, my love of music really started, um, you know, as a young kid, I grew up in um, a not so great part of Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was sort of like the first form of, of escapism that I had ever had. Um, you know, it was just like, I think, I think when you watch like friends make decisions of like joining gangs or like selling dope or um, like slagging off in school, like all these things that was just like normal in like the neighborhood that I grew up in, like I saw music as a way to just escape all of that, escape sort of um, bullying and like always constantly like having to like think about fighting or not fighting or like just whatever getting through like the day. Um, so it really started with, you know, my mom was someone who she was a big fan of R&B. My brother was a big fan of hip hop. So these things were just always in the house. So like I was the kid that was listening to UGK and Nas and, you know, Whitney Houston um, and Mariah Carey and just like learning really early on that this world existed before I even knew that you could like get paid to write about this stuff, just knowing that this world existed where there were all of these people making music that spoke to me, um, was exciting. It was exciting for a kid. It was exciting for a kid who, you know, grew up, you know, late eighties, early nineties. So it's like the beginning of like MTV's like golden era you know bt all of those things like racing you know by the time i was in you know middle school well junior high school i guess i should say junior high school going into high school like that was the era where you were racing home to watch trl or what racing home to watch um 106 in park but i had also had this affinity for writing because my grandfather really got me into journalism he got me into um reading the news on a daily basis like he I don't want to say force it on me because that feels like, you know, it, it feels like I was unwilling, but I, I really did enjoy it. But he was not a fan of like entertainment kind of stuff. So I used to use my um, like, so it would be a thing where it was like if I got sick, you know, I'm on my home from school sick and it's like, oh, I just really want like word up or like write on and he would get me those magazines he would treat me to those kinds of things if i had like a sick day or if i had like straight a's on my report card but other than that it would be like i need you to read newsweek and time and it was just always like straight hard news but like my treats were like the entertainment publications and you know i grew up at a time where there were so many that covered like teenage black music 
um, that doesn't exist anymore, right? I mean, obviously it exists in a different kind of way, especially with stand culture online. But when you were seeing those publications where you were getting these little profiles of, of immature and Monica and Brandy and TLC, and then you had the poster insert in the middle. So my bedroom, doesn't surprise anybody who knows me. My bedroom was covered in posters um, from everybody that I was a fan of. But I decided really early on, like, yo, one day I'm going to be able to do this. Like, I hope I, it was the dream, of course, but it was just like, I didn't want anything else. Like, I was the kid that was like, I knew this is what I wanted. All of my friends were like, I'm going to be a ball player. I'm going to be this. And I was like, nah, I'm about to be writing about R&B artists. <laughs> um, and I was so serious about it. And I think if I didn't have like the support of, you know, obviously my grandfather, but also my mom who saw like, oh, this is an interest and this kid is like really serious. Like he, you know, my birthday would come around. What do you want? I want to go to the record store. You know, I, I want, I want to buy, I want to buy some CDs. Um, you know, like it was, it was things like that where it was in my mind, I didn't realize I was training for all of this, but I just thought, oh, I was just a fan of all these things. And maybe one day I'll get to do it. Um, so every internship that I ever had doing journalism, I was always like, can I like be on the features desk? So when you're at like small papers in Ohio, like I would get to do, I would do stories on like whoever came to town. Um, I worked at the student paper at my undergrad. Um, I went to Ohio State. And so being on that paper and it was Columbus, Ohio, which is a major city in the state. So we got everybody that came to the state. My first my first interview as a freshman um, in undergrad and my first big interview was a Feeney Shakur. Um, and I think for me, that was a moment where it was like, one, I only I got I got the story simply by asking, which in retrospect feels insane. But I was at a I was at a paper where I was I was the only black person like I wasn't even on staff, but I was the only black writer that was like really trying to like be in the mix. And so she was coming to campus and doing a talk and I pitched it to the arts editor and he was like, yeah, of course. And so when I reached out to the team because she was coming to speak at the school and we're the school paper, they said yes. So I didn't even think about like going into the interview. I just was like, oh, I got the interview. Cool, cool, cool. And then I get there and I am so nervous because then you finally like have the moment to like take the two seconds to realize Oh, this, you know, it's Tupac's mother and she's sitting here and she's sitting next to me and she's got her hand on my hand and she's very softly saying, you know, ask me whatever you need, baby. And I'm just like, oh, I didn't actually really think about what this is going to be. Um, <laughs> and, the, and it wasn't that I was not prepared. I had a bunch of questions that I wanted to ask her, um, but I wasn't really fully prepared to be in that moment of sitting with her and doing it and there was cameras and the whole thing um and that was the beginning that was the beginning of a, of a career that i have been so grateful to have where i've been able to interview every person that i've dreamed of of course you know we still have a list of folks who um you know one day maybe but it's like at this point beyonce's not talking to anybody so you know i don't really <laughs> you know i don't i don't feel too bad about my wish list because my wish list is very small and it's folks who don't you know really do interviews anymore but um you know the beginning of my career like everything was i mean it's still that way i still feel this way but even hearing you introduce me in the beginning like there are people i have forgotten that i have done an interview for and that's 
such a privilege to have. Like I'm entirely like I know that. But also part of it is like, you know, being in journalism and doing it full time at a major publication, you are writing so much that sometimes you do forget to like sit and really enjoy it. And so I've been able to do that now that this book is out and I'm talking to people more and they're asking me questions about, you know, past work. And you start to have that moment of like, oh, yeah, I re- I did do that. And I I mean, I forgot, but I did do it. And now that it's been, I can now think about it and remember it and enjoy it and celebrate. Wow. That was a really in-depth answer. (laughs) It really helped kind of detail who you are, where you came from, but also looking back as well and kind of forward as well. So Yeah. yeah, thank you for that perspective. It's really illustrated who you are and where you are at the moment. So yeah, really appreciate that. Nick, did you want to go next? Yeah. Um, I've got a question that would neatly segue. Um, so, if no, do you think? Do you think? Cool. So basically, um, journalism. I can resonate with some of what you said. Um, others, not so much, just because you've done it for so long. And yeah, thank you for sitting down with us today. And your wealth of experience is next to none. Um, I just want to go into something you said about you know media changing, stand culture, and we actually had you know Elijah Watson, who is obviously an editor at OK Player, doing an incredible job at trying to uphold that legacy. Um, and what he mentioned, what he's mentioned since being on the show is the line between a media personality and yes. a journalist in um, mm-hmm. 2022. And he referenced academics in particular. And I know, obviously, you listen to Nas, hip-hop. So, obviously, you know the landscape of hip-hop journalism. And some of those are your peers, of course. So, I wanted to ask you about the role of journalism in mm-hmm. 2022 and how you've seen it pivot. You know, we see freelance writers like myself, you know, having to pivot into broadcast journalism, having to do, you know, certain other things, partnerships and, and things like that for money and like um, building the career and sustaining the career in journalism. We see black women particularly mm-hmm. leave the field because of misogyny, misogynoir and all of that. So I really want to ask you, how you've seen that pivot, particularly for black journalists um, and particularly in the United States where you reside mm. as well. The question is a, a shiver down me um, because it's something that it, it's something that I think about a lot, honestly. Um, the beginning when I first got into this, when I first when I first arrived to the L.A. Times um, to give perspective of what was happening in the world when I got there, my fourth day at the paper, Michael Jackson died. Um, crazy. And so, you know, but I, and I, and I think of, and I think of a moment like that because I think of a story like that. And that's a global story where no matter what newsroom you were in, especially if you were in a newsroom in LA, it was all hands on deck, you know, story. But once I, and at the, and at that time, I was actually, I wasn't even in the entertainment section yet. I was in the metro section, which is just, you know, city news. Um, when I made the transition, which I was always working to um, at that particular place, was making the transition into the entertainment team and specifically the music team, which came about, you know, maybe eight or nine months after that, after he passed. Um, you know, the first thing that I that I that I remembered um, noticing was how divided everything was. And I was somebody who I read everything I read all the blogs, I read everything. I didn't do the whole, this is, this is one thing, everything else is another, and I valued this more than um, others. But I also 
knew what it was like to be treated as such when it would be when it would come time to, for instance, say like you reached out because you want to interview this artist and because of the publication that you were at, you were going to get whatever it is that you were wanting, right? For that particular interview. Yeah. Versus one of my peers who is at um a music blog, popular still, but still a music blog and there's no print um component. So now you're gonna have them be treated much differently. They're gonna get a junket. They're gonna get four of them on a call talking to said artist. And said artist has now done this interview with four different writers, maybe five, maybe even more, and they can all get a piece, right? Versus a magazine, right, where you can then get even more of what I asked for, you know, because it's now a magazine. There's a budget for a photo shoot. There's all these other things that that um, are a component to it. So you saw this yeah. difference in, in in treatment. But what I started to notice over time was as those lines blurred and artists understood that more than anything else. Their teams didn't, though, um, but artists understood that even more so where they're looking at um you're looking at that grape juice and you're seeing, okay, well, they're extremely popular. Same as, you know, a wrap up, they're extremely popular. So I want to make time for them just as much as I want to make time for LA Times and New York Times. Um, just the same way as I want to make sure I'm getting in Rolling Stone. Um, so when all of those lines started to blur a little bit, I think it created um, a lot of confusion for definitely um, a generation of writers who are now feeling like I'm sharing this space with these people who don't have the same kind of training, who don't have the same kind of chops or whatever, versus someone like me who I was younger and I read all that stuff, but I also was like, ultimately, people who are fans of this, they don't actually care because they are wanting to read or watch or see an artist or a celebrity talk about the thing. So if that's coming from someone with, you know, a million followers and zero journalism um, education versus or experience versus someone at one of these legacy publications who gets, you know, the hour, two hour interview with them, like, yes, one is going to be seen as more serious, but both are going to be consumed. Um, and so I think the biggest shift that, I, that I've seen through all of this is people really struggle to understand that and struggle to accept that um, because eventually it became, a, we got to a point where there is no more, there's no line anymore between all of it. There are people who hold on to it. There are people who want to still um, place one thing over the other, but your general consumer doesn't really care that much anymore. And, I, and that also extends to even that print component. You know, most of, my, I, I, most of my audience, they're online. They're on Twitter. They're not all sitting in LA. We're right now having a conversation in two, in, I'm in one country, you're in another. And you're talking about reading my work for years. And that's incredible to me. But at the same time, I was at a publication where it was people who lived in this city who was like, well, if I don't see you in the paper, you don't really exist. And it's like, but also my, my work has a global reach because it's online, but you're not because you are, you know, in your 60s and you don't want to get on the computer. And that's fine. But now there's a whole world that doesn't exist for you in terms of this music coverage. So mm. I start to see mm. how all of these things struggle because all of these publications, all of them still struggle with the Internet. Every single one of them. Oh, they do. They still yeah. struggle with understanding that that is your first, that's your first audience. 
and it's the audience that you should care about. So it would be really difficult when you would, I'd write a piece on an artist and be really excited for the piece. The piece will go online. It would do really well online. And then it would run in the paper like four weeks later when there was space. Who cares at that point? That those, and those four weeks later when it's now in the paper, who honestly, who's going to care about that? But that is going to reach an audience who has not been online for those four weeks and they didn't see it. So, so many publications I see, that's their, that's their biggest struggle. And I think it's why so many of them are continuing to fail, honestly, because they don't want to invest in the, in the reality that a lot of people are accessing all of this information for free um, on the Internet. And yes, I think, you know, paywalls, all that stuff, all those things should happen because journalists should be paid for their work. Um, but culturally, we haven't done a good enough job of advocating for that because as we've seen so many publications still struggle with like their online presence, they're doing this thing of like, okay, yeah, it's been free, but now it's not free no more. And a lot of people are just like, well, well I mean, I'm not going to pay now because yeah. I'm going to just read, read it someplace else or I'm going to read the screenshots that somebody's going to upload on um, Twitter. Um, but even beyond that, I think, you know, when you're seeing all these pivots happening, a lot of those pivots are happening out of survival. You know, there's only so much that, you know, black folks can take of being in these newsrooms and they're really kind of sidelined until you have to explain some blackness for somebody um, or you know, being in these spaces where, and, and, I, and I love, I love that hip hop has become what it's become. And I think it's beautiful. And it's, it's one thing that if you're a music fan, you want to see it happen. And I've always wanted to see it happen. But it also still really does bother me when you're seeing most of the people who are allowed to be the critics and the voices of, of it Oof. are not of the culture. Um, and don't even care to really invest in the culture because they don't want to they don't uh, they don't accept the fact that they are a visitor to the to to the culture and you're a guest but that does not mean you get to dictate um and so i am very firm Boy. in how i feel about that because i was in places where i understood oh my voice doesn't matter until you understand that that white person can't actually do this um so i think of a moment like for instance um, when Beyonce headlined Coachella and did a very black performance, right? And you're watching all of these white critics try to wrangle themselves to figure it out. And like, now they're trying to figure out what Greek life is. Now they're trying to figure out all the stuff where it's like, <laughs> okay, you don't have it. Or or even, even more cultural nuances that I think, you know, should be existing in this space. There's a conversation around um, Isaiah Rashad right now that I'm wanting us to have, but that needs to be had, that needs to be had very carefully and very particularly within our community. And it's probably not going to happen because what's going to end up happening is you're going to get one of these publications going to send one of their white writers to write the profile. Yeah. And it's just what it is, um, you know, and so it's really hard. And, and, you know, and, and 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 the one thing I said is, you know, all black writers, I have y'all back forever, but especially in 2020, as a black freelance writer, the way that our phones rang off the hook because it's like, oh, my God, we feel like. We need to have, we just really want to get your voice. And it's like, no, you want a black voice and you need a black voice. And this summer of reckoning <laughs> is happening and you don't have any under under idea of like how Lord. to handle it. So you're trying to get somebody to come like write the piece. Or when a thing happens and you recognize you need to bring somebody in to have the conversation, then you can suddenly 
your phone works and you know how to you can reach all these writers for freelance but you couldn't find us for the jobs though no we suddenly couldn't find you couldn't find us when it was like when you're hiring your hip-hop critic or your hip-hop mm-hmm. editor somehow mm-hmm. the phone don't work for us but yep. when Ooh. lots of people die at Astro World and you want a black writer to write about Travis oh Kyle, yeah oh, the trouble oh no then you find us right when Kanye is going through what he's going through now you want to have a black writer to explain that <laughs> somehow you yeah. know and so that's what I think of when I see these people pivot it's because of it's because we're tired we're, oh, we're, 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 mm. we're, we're, we've, we're so mm. burnt out and exhausted from that being the only time our phone rings. And it is the only time our phone rings, if we're going to be it really is. honest about it. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I also speak with I speak with immense privilege because I've been able to do so much that like, yeah, oftentimes I'll be the first phone call because I'm like the first black person that they can remember because they're like, oh, yeah, he had a book out. <laughs> but even even when it was even when it was putting out this Whitney book and. I'm going to just call a spade a spade. It was really interesting to see how many people turned down our pitches for just talking about the book. But then when those same editors realized, oh, the 10th anniversary of her death is coming up and we don't have any content. <gasps> Garrett, can you come do this or can you come jump on our show and talk about this? But uh, really, we just want to talk about the weekend of her dying again for the hundredth time. And can you like talk about that? But like maybe not talk about the book because we don't actually really care about you trying to introduce scholarship. We just want to get the dirt and we want a black face to do it because it makes this whole thing that we're doing feel better for us. Mm. So, you know, there's so many of things that I like notice and that, that's really I think the 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 line being blurred where I see so many folks get so bent out of shape about you know stand culture and this and this where it's like yeah stands are the tastemakers now and it's not you know some small staff at some you know dying publication where it's just a bunch of white dudes all swinging their dick to see who could be the one to like say the thing about blackness and own it in a space where they know that they can't but they also mm-hmm. know that they can't be the ones that's like mm-hmm. maybe somebody else should do this because no you want to be in the mix well Thank you for that was well, really spicy such. that was well, really spicy. great and you know answer <laughs> like well. literally no honestly thank you for such a great answer i first want to say the resonation with the phone calls on black topics only which is why i've made it a point this year to interview white artists to make a point yeah to make a point and also i think with what you said about your book and even you someone was you know decades at this point of experience to see you be sidelined and marginalized when it's your work being produced on someone who is such an icon in this industry and has done so much for this industry to be sidelined in her hardest moments of life and you know ridiculed by the media um is a shame and it just shows the parallels of these things and how they operate in different spaces Mm -hmm. i think what you said about hip-hop is very cognizant to what i watched last year on um fx it was a hip-hop series about the trajectory of hip-hop um And it said, obviously, that this mainstream moment would happen. Obviously, we are in it. We are living in it, breathing through it, watching as it happens. And it's just funny, as you highlighted, who gets to cover it? Who gets to be the critics? Who gets to really dictate? And critics at legacy publications here, where real gravitas and real audience comes into the fore. Even with internet culture and stand culture, you know, I'm not going to say any names, but who gets to report on that? and go to certain houses and all of that and be a trend reporter on that and, you know, document the black trends as they kind of Mm -hmm. get usurped by popular culture. I think we can all think of the name I'm talking about, but there is a lot 
to say in a lot of black faces who get sidelined while their work is stolen and appropriated by, you know, other people of um, different races, not just white people. I've seen it. I've seen it happen beyond white, white people as well. And it's, it's just interesting to see the parallels that you've had to deal with in your career to date. It's a shame because you could have done so much more than you've already done if mm. those barriers to entry weren't weren't there. But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you you've done what you've done, and I'm glad that you're you've got multiple books out. You know, so thank you for your and honest and transparent. Let's answer. get into that book now, <laughs> shall we? Well, well, the thing is, I was gonna say, Garrick, I. <laughs> I, I can't lie. I hate guests like you. I can't lie because <laughs> you <laughs> literally <laughs> answered at least three of my questions just in that whole one question answer you gave, but it was really succinct and to the point. So thank you for that. That's going to be, you know, excellent for, you know, journalists to even hear. So thank you for speaking on all that you've spoken about. But Shope is right. We need to get into the book and talk about the book now. So didn't we almost have it all right in defense of Whitney Houston? So can you talk about this book? What motivated you to write it? Um, and who is this book for? Um, what motivated me to write this book was, um, you know, really simple. It was two things. One, it was my own. Um, I'd been carrying this burden um, as one of the last people that saw her alive. And, you know, that weekend, you know, it haunted me in a particular way. Like I stopped listening to her music. I stopped really um, thinking about her because all like any time I thought about her or heard her music, all I thought about was like how absolutely awful it was to meet a human being. You can take all of what she was off the table, but meeting a human being and then them being gone in 48 hours. Um, that was extraordinarily painful for me. And I was really young um, when that happened. I was a really young reporter, but I was also a really young person too. Um, and so it, that, that, that trauma, um, you know, it just, I built this wall up. Um, and as a music fan, I wanted to tear that back down. Um, so I saw the book as an opportunity to do that for myself, but also for me to correct a thing that had been bothering me since she passed away, which was the way that I felt we were um, celebrating her and talking about her was really limited to the trauma of the things that undid her. Um, everything felt so limited to the drugs or limited to Bobby or limited to this rumor of her and her sexuality and this idea that she was not, you know, a free woman in her own body and her own mind and her own spirit as an artist. Um, those things really, really, really bothered me. And I wanted to really explore why we kept doing that, why we did it in the first place, but also um, who we've become since, because I think who we've become since is also worth acknowledging the work that we've done culturally to have different conversations around our artists, especially black artists and especially black women artists, but um, really essentially women artists, women in pop music. Um, the way that we're talking about Britney Spears right now is much different than we were in the past. Or we were talking about Janet um, is much different. Or we were talking about, you know, Mariah Carey is much different. Even this moment with, you know, Brandy, who was so gracious um, to, to write the foreword for this book, um, is so different. And so much of that is because we 
have learned some really hard lessons about how we treat celebrities. And we've been trying to do different. We've been trying to do better in lots of ways. In some ways, we are just as awful. Um, and so I wanted to explore all of that. And I thought every book that was out there never um, treated her as a serious artist. They never treated her as a serious person or even an interesting enough person to study. There are so many books that study Madonna and her artistry. There were none on Whitney. There's so many on Prince and Michael. And these were all people that she came up with. And I thought it was such a um, um, disservice to her legacy to not have that. And so I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be, um, I wanted to write a book of, 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 of cultural criticism, but also just be a music nerd and really celebrate this one artist who is so foundational. So that was really the motivation. And so because of that, I wanted to. I wanted. I wanted the book to be for everybody. Um, there are spaces in the in the book where I am speaking directly to Black people, and I make it very clear. Um, I'm speaking directly to Black queer people, and I make that really clear. And I'm also speaking directly to the world, and I and I think I make that really clear too. And so that's why I thought you know the book needed to be um, much different from a traditional book of criticism. And so that was what I was worried about the most was people being like picking it up and being like oh there's no there's no dirt so this book is trash which people are doing and and I knew that that was going to happen because I also knew that people would prove my point right which is you don't see that woman beyond her tragedies and you don't care to see her beyond her tragedies um and 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 really combating that I think was what I wanted us to start doing just as you know as a, as a culture having a conversation around Whitney Thank you so much for that. And can I just add one of the things that I love about this book? Because um, just to give you my background, so I w actually work in publishing. So I've been working in publishing for a while now and I see books like this being published in the UK quite a lot. So one thing that really stands out for me is um, how colloquial you are mm -hmm. in this book and just so freely as mm -hmm. well, um, which is something that, you know, I know from experience is something publishers usually don't like yeah um so the fact that you were so free with the way you kind of spoke about certain topics like I uh, referenced the Wendy Williams interview for example and the fact that you said that um when Whitney called in and she got in Wendy's like ass <laughs> like, I was just like I was like the way you worded that was perfect but um at the same time I really appreciated the authenticity of your voice in this book so I just wanted to mention that just in my Thank question you. Um, but I think Chope has a question that he wants to ask. I do. So before I ask my question, I want to ask how you are for time, because I'm aware that we've not really gotten too deep into the book yet and you've been on it for a while. So I just wanted to check or if you're able to give us more of your wonderful time before I ask my question. I ask all the questions you need. Okay. So one of my favorite things... You're going to regret that. I'm just going to say... No, I would not at all. This is, this is, this, I'm, I'm having so much fun with you guys. Okay. So one of my favorite things about the book, among many things, like I said, I've got a lot to ask you, but I loved the way you contextualize the importance of Sissy Houston and the stature she has in her own right, because mm. to the layman, they may just think, oh, she's Whitney's mother, and they may be aware of her background singing but right. you you really position her as working as working with individuals who were literally central to the development of rock and roll like mm -hmm. um big mama thornton aretha franklin elvis presley jerry lieber who wrote for big mama thornton and all these great people and as, as well as being significant to the popularization of gospel music 
So I wanted to know, why did you make sure to give Sissy that space and reverence, even though it's not about her? This is about Whitney. Yeah, because I think it's been so easy for us, even even when we were watching um, Whitney's Rise, um, it was really easy to just say, oh, the great Sissy Houston, and she sang with Aretha, and like that was like enough of a beat to then be like, oh, her daughter is important. But nobody ever really sat with the magnitude of Sissy Houston and what she had done um, and what she meant to multiple genres of music. And, and I thought there's no way that people could ever truly understand how important Whitney Houston is and will always be if they don't understand her mother. All right. Thank you. Nick, Eden? I just wanted to um, reference a line where you said you were in London, actually, just um, as obviously we're here. And um, basically you describe yourself as like having the confidence and newfound confidence to explore and, you know, really navigate yourself. And that was, you know, imparted by Whitney's, the, Mm -hmm. the passing, but still Whitney. So I wanted to ask what you learned about yourself during that visit and during that time. And what about that moment gave you the push to travel and, and navigate that sense of yourself? Um, you know, grief is really interesting, and 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 I think, I think as as music journalists, God, especially in the last like five or six years, we really had to like, really sort of confront what our grief looks like when we lose these people who are part of the reasons why we do this as a profession. Um, and so you do develop these deep connections, I think. Um, and some of that is just because of what music means to us um, personally. Um, so where I felt at that time was, it was such a, that was such a tough experience to go through as, as, a, as a young reporter. Um, but, you know, and I said earlier, even as a young person, but really as a young reporter, where I was then thrust into this story because I was like just a witness to somebody's like last days. And I had to write this piece about what it was like at the Hilton, um, you know, in those days before she had passed away. And so then I became this like source for all of these other publications and all these other um, news shows. The first time I was ever on television was like the morning after she passed away, I had to do today's show. So I'm like, you know, there's video online. It's like, I'm a deer in, in, in headlights, you know, being interviewed by Matt Lauer, which like, as a journalist, it's like one of your dreams. And so for it to come in this way that's terrible was like so awful. Plus it was also like four o'clock in the morning. So I was like, just, you know, not completely there. And that continued for like, a, I think I did like three or four weeks of just like press all day, every single day, um, while also trying to like help cover the story as much as possible but at a certain point they pulled me off of it because they're like you have to go do all these interviews um so i just ended up in this like really deep depression um once i finally had the space around it and so i thought like i should do something for myself this year was awful um and so i decided to take this trip which in retrospect like i don't even know how i even mustered up the confidence to like go that far outside of where I had ever, I had never been, I never even been on a plane that long, um, let alone go to any other country. And so I think just like the shock 
of doing something like that and doing it by myself was like just what I needed to sort of like not think about the past year and like I'm gonna just go do this one thing for myself that I've just never done you know finally had a little bit of like money to like do something like that um and so I thought it was something that was so really strange about being in that headspace going and doing this trip and doing this thing that was really about like my childhood growing up learning French for reasons that my mom still never explained to me um, other than she thought the language is pretty, um, but not practical, <laughs> no offense. Um, but like I live in LA, so like French is just not practical in any way. Um, but, you know, doing this trip and ending up in, you know, ended up in London and this night where I'm just like, you know, I had drank, I wrote about it, but I, you know, I had a little, not a little, I had a lot to drink and I couldn't find my way back to the hotel. And then I stumble upon this production of the bodyguard and it just was like how serendipitous is is it that i'm in you know this place doing this trip getting my mind off of this whole year and this loss and now i'm seeing it presented to me in this other kind of way that almost felt like um a call-in of like hey like it's probably time for you to like let that part go like whatever weird like because it was kind of guilt. I felt, I felt guilty of like, well, who am I to have been like one of the last people to see her alive? Like, I don't know. There was just this weird thing that I was doing in my head um, about it. And so like that moment was this, for me, this feeling of like, not let it go, but like, it's time to start moving forward and not like carry some of this like burden. And so, you know, I didn't see the show at that moment because it's, it just, I wasn't in the right place for it. But I started thinking about her more. And I started then going back to the music. Like it, it was, it was sort of an introduction back into her in a particular kind of way. Um, and so, what I really did learn from that whole entire experience is one, I'm more fearless than I thought I was. Even though I had, you know, two years prior moved across country the day after graduation to a place I had only ever been to like once as a teenager, um, and now I'm making it my home and I'm like building a career here. And so, like, you know, now that I'm you know, mid thirties, I still to this day don't know how I like had the gumption to do that at, you know, 21. But, um, that's what I learned. I learned that moment of like, nah, you can like, you can do anything. And also like, you'll be fine too. Like I really needed that moment of like, you'll be fine. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so my question is more around, um, parasocial relationships. So in this book, what you talk about quite a lot is um, the way that we didn't really get the opportunity. And when I say we, I mean fans of Whitney to see the true version mm -hmm. of Whitney. We saw who, you know, the versions mm -hmm. of her that was marketable and what was sold to us. But essentially, she never had the opportunity to be her. And I kind of just wanted to get your opinion on Stan culture and how you saw it or how you see it with regards to um, our relationship with artists do you see it as a benefit to the artist because in most cases stan culture is in defense of a particular artist or do you see it as a uh -huh. particularly toxic type of support group for an artist what what is your opinion on stan culture essentially mm, you guys are asking me so many good tough questions <laughs> <laughs> um Gonna say welcome and, to know, the and, 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 and I'm and I'm and I'm transparent about it. I have a twofold question. Mm -hmm. Well, twofold answer. Um, on one end, I would 
Oof. Yeah, I'm about to walk into it. Um, <laughs> you know? I okay. No, I'm just gonna say it. I wish that a lot of them understood, truly understood, that the people you were doing this for, they do not want this. And they are uncomfortable with it. They dislike it, but they also feel like they can't say anything. And I have had so many conversations with artists where they're just like this shit be looking crazy. Sorry if I'm not allowed to curse. Oh, um, oh, do okay. and and you know and 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 it's and it's so and it's so fascinating because like you know as I as I've gotten older in this and I've talked to so many different sorts of folks like when you really see the ones who are like I won't even like go online because it's too unhinged like that to me is always it's just strange and like and I get it. You know, because on one end, it's like these are people who they like love the music and they want to like promote it and they want to do all these things. And I think it's great. But also, like, I don't I don't have to notice you. Like, I don't. So you tweeting me all day. I don't I don't I don't actually have to tweet you back. I don't have to retweet you. I don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. You're not old that. And I do think an unfortunate thing about stand culture is the level of entitlement that they feel to an artist or a celebrity is so wildly outrageous that it sometimes borders like the line of where it's like I, you do seem ment- mentally unwell. Like you paying your nine dollars mm. for the CD or you buying this ticket for one hundred fifty dollars does not mean a person is supposed to take a picture with you in the bathroom. Doesn't mean you're supposed to be like hanging out in front of their hotel. All these things is so wildly like over the top that like they don't like it. And like a lot of them, yeah, they're going to participate in the things that make them feel comfortable. So like I'm, you know, doing the wave or whatever, whatever little that they do. But for the most part, that doesn't even feel like enough anymore mm. for some of these things. So when I, every time I go see, you know, and I base off how I'm going to respond back to you. If I go to your profile and you got noticed by such and such on this day, liked by, retweeted by, baby, I'm not responding to you because you don't even have it. You, you are, the, you're, you're someplace else that I don't. That you're never going to be able to understand where I'm coming from as someone who actually gets to like meet these people and know these people and talk to these people. Mm. And they and, and, and there's and there's artists that I would never name. They'd be laughing at, at this shit. Like they think this shit is so wildly like crazy that they are, you know, but then are also kind of like you're, you're trapped. So you end up and I think people can then figure out who these people are when you then realize they do not participate in social media. It is completely managed by somebody else. There is never any sort of real authentic engagement one-on-one. They're not commenting on posts or any of that kind of stuff because they're not on it and they stay off of it. Or they have their secret burner account that they, you know, they go and they look at stuff, but they can't participate because you all are sitting there begging to be seen or, oh, it's my birthday. Please tell me happy birthday. Ooh. Like some of it is just like so much where it's like, Honestly, like you buying the music, like they appreciate that, but that's kind of it. There's one of my favorite stories from um from Whitney was she got and she got all this she got all this flack for it. Um, she was doing a show this early '90s, and a fan walks up to the stage and is holding a photo because they want an autograph. They're holding it up to her as she's singing, 
And she stops the show and she looks down and she says, your 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 ticket says seat, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. So now, so, so then it's, oh, well, oh you know, Whitney's a diva. And, that's, yeah. and that was how it was covered. Oh, she's a diva. She's this. She's in the middle of a show singing is what you all have paid to see her do. You paid to see her sing for you all night. And you've left her seat to walk to the stage to hold up something for her because you want her to do something on your command because you think that you're entitled to it. The same way of, you know, how many times do we watch artists be called out their name because they wouldn't stop to say the hello or they wouldn't stop to do this or, you know, oh, you walked to the airport and you didn't hug me. And I told you that, you know, my brother who was back home, who I was on FaceTime is terminally ill. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. But also like, damn, it was, I, I'm, I got somewhere to go and I'm supposed to stop. But they, they believe that. And the other, the other lie that I think Stan tell themselves too is like, you know, we pay your bills and it's like well, you don't like you actually don't like you really do think that your ten dollars is like that went into their pockets it didn't the same way is whatever you pay for that concert ticket it didn't the same way of the merch it just it doesn't there's so many things about that but even 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 that aside the fact that you feel that you were then entitled to that because of what you do is the same way of me saying oh well i I pay however X amount of dollars for, for Netflix every month. So if I don't like something on Netflix, somebody needs to be coming to my house and telling me why why this still is on the on the platform. Mm. Like it's it to me it's it's all cut from the same cloth. You believe that your dollars entitle you to something more than entertainment, which is really what you're paying for. Um so the the, the why, why my why my why my opinions about stands are often rooted in a lot of spice is because so much violence that I see on the internet is from stands. Mm. So much of what I'm seeing in terms of like, yeah, we're we're defending somebody. Well, how are you defending somebody by telling me that I deserve to die because you didn't like what I wrote about their concert? Which, by the way, the concert was still whack. So you telling me that I deserve to, and 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 this is and this is actual examples i've been told that i deserve to die of aids from lady gaga fans for not liking something i've been told from nikki fans that i should fucking rot in hell i've had people show photos of my mom and tell me that oh we're gonna kill her just all this crazy shit which first of all i'm like the thing with stands that's always funny to me is like can you fight because i know that you can't and the way that you behave on twitter and it's like it already lets me know that you can't fight so why are you doing this because you're going to actually meet somebody who you're going to catch them on the right day and that's the thing that i always worry about because as these lines have blurred right there's more people who really do feel not only am i entitled to the time and to the intention but i can say whatever i want and you're supposed to take it i'm supposed to be able to call you this or this or this because you I didn't like this song or this and all these things and, and even now it's become a thing where it's not just the artists it's their whole team it's everybody they're finding the producers they're finding the label people they're finding all of them and and sending them abuse and harassment and that and and we don't call these things what they are because instead we're supposed to use words like oh they're just passionate no you're not like some of some of this is actual violence mm. it just is like now, yes, of course, there are people who it is actual passion. You know what I mean? Like I love Beyonce, so I'm probably gonna buy Ivy Park every time it drops. That's that's me being a stand. You know what I mean? Like when her when she's coming to town, I want to sit in a certain place at the venue. That's the kind of standship that I was that I grew up on. It wasn't this whole 
I want to find you at your house and sit outside your house and wait for you to like come say hello to me. No, no, no. That's not it. You're stalking. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's actually that's what it is. Um, and so because the culture has sh- changed and shifted so much, where now we have some artists, right? Some artists who weaponize that. Some artists who get off on that. We don't have to say names, but they know who they you are. Did, you said there's, a name. You, you said one. You said one. <laughs> you, you did. You, know, you did. There are some who they get really excited about knowing that I can, I can tweet a thing and I can now see this person be attacked or this person be, you know, dragged or all these things because I can have my fan base do it. And that's a person who does it on a regular basis. And we don't ever really want to like talk about it. I mean, I've written about it in the past, but it's like the fact that that still goes on and you know, you're in, you're in your forties. You know what I mean? Like, well, (laughs) you know, whatever age you say that you are, but you, you, you are, you are old enough to know that you have a young fan base that is willing to sit on Twitter all day long and yep. send people death threats and threats of violence and all this other stuff at your will. And you've done it to writers, you've done it to artists, oh, she, oh, she you've has. done it, you've done it, you've done it to everybody. You know, and, and and that is where I start to feel like, oh, all of this, we have to have a real conversation about it mm. because it's now it it goes too far on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm. On a regular basis, unhinged, mm. unhinged. unhinged behavior. Thank so you for that. My my question kind of hinges off the beginning of Eden's last question. So he spoke about you know we weren't able to really see her, and we now see in retrospect that her blackness and her queerness was really shrunk behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And several times throughout the book, you hold the black community to task for vilifying her for being a sellout and not being down. And, you know, and you mentioned how, you know, You Give Good Love was released to kind of, you know, ingratiate herself within, within the black radio first. And even Thinking About You was also sent to R&B yeah. radio as well. And, of course, you crossed over with How Will I Know, Grace Love of All. And you obviously come for Clive Davis quite a lot, which I'm very happy about because he needs that. Um, it's fucking forever for that party. Um, but do you think now seeing, like, really analysing the vilification she got from her black fans and the black audience especially at Soul Train Wars do you think Clive and Arista could have done a better job at keeping both her audiences satisfied rather than going so rogue and so middle of the road with how they marketed her the songs she sang you know I'm I'm not sure if they I'm not sure if they were able to because you know I think ultimately you know for as much as much gripe as I give Clive and a lot of it is rooted in the fact that you know he loves revisionist history. I mean, he just does. And so I've always had a hard time with somebody that's like, oh, I had no idea that there was any problem. I'm like, how do you not know? But the streets are already gossiping about it. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, so some of those things is what I really, you know, am pretty hard on Clive about. But as it relates to how he marketed her, I think a lot of that was really brilliant one-on-one marketing. When you think about the era that it was and you think about, you know, you're you are promoting a crossover artist. I mean, that's 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 what the plan was from the beginning. And everybody was on board, including Whitney, including her family. Oh, everybody was on board. But I think what could have possibly where, where there could have been improvement is, I think, a lot of what was being written oftentimes by white critics um, 
was this idea that it wasn't R&B and that was not cool to me because that was not true. Um, you know, like to say to say that this music was not R&B was like, no, you know, like even 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 the dancier stuff. I'm like, what do you think? What do you think that music is built off of? You know, so just the way that she was constantly being erased as an artist in a particular kind of way, I thought was so um, frustrating, especially when you then see how some folks wanted to shift with with her third album and love the third album. But how much separates I'm Your Baby Tonight from the first two albums? Like, honestly, like how much separates those three records? Like, not that much. I would say um, quite a bit from the second album. That second you think album. Quite was, a bit, you think quite a bit from the second album to that, the third. That second album was very white. It was very. It was very Sarah. It was. It was very Sarah. <laughs> Sterile. <laughs> a, I, you know, I, I. But are you are you saying that because it was so formulaic? Compared, like the first, it, it, it yeah, repeated. Yeah, the formula. Very the formulaic. Album. But even like when I think about like the ballads, like beyond her voice, they were very bereft of any mm, mm-hmm. soul or any funk or any oomph they were like her voice did the work but the actual songs themselves were very schmaltzy whereas at least on the first album yes it was i feel like they towed the line between the pop and r&b and the dance a lot better the second album and i do love the for the love of you and just the talking those are my jams but majority of the album is a hell no mm. i w- i mean <laughs> <laughs> I just no because I like I said sorry Nick and Eden. No, do you um, think? Because I actually well, I loved that you really gave I'm a baby tonight as flowers because I know the critics at the time didn't really care for it and they were they really did call out how it was calculated and quite hollow. But at the same time, I do feel that it was definitely a creative and artistic leap. And I actually do th- and I actually wanted to ask you because you also mentioned earlier in the book about how in the eighties. It was like black black entertainers were at the peak of ubiquitousness, but they were allowed on like this cultural biraciality. And like, you know, you had Oprah, you had Eddie Murphy, Spike Lee, Tina Turner making rock music and was still Lionel Richie making, you know, very vanilla pop music and all those things. But when it's, and then obviously when it gets to like the mid 90s and obviously with like you know, Whitney's career, like Way Into Excel and all those later projects. So I wanted to ask, like, without I'm a Baby Tonight, do you think she would have survived? the rest of that decade because by the 90s black people were still very ubiquitous but they were doing it without having to really having to rely on pop sound or white sound or white aesthetic they were kind of able to just be and it worked so what do you think do you think that would have sorry do you think Whitney would have survived if she hadn't made that creative leap with that third album um do I think she would have survived um the 90s if she didn't make that third album I I don't I don't think so I don't think I don't think it would have allowed people to start to well I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's entirely fair of me to say because I I think that once she was with Bobby it did reinvigorate some interest in a particular kind of way even if it was, you know, this negative chatter of like is this relationship a stunt because of what we've been saying or because of these rumors. Um so there would have been attention to whatever the next project would have been. But I do think that it did really help 
to have a record like that that has some slappers on it. I mean, if you know, I mean, that's the thing about that third album is like it, it had some really, really, really great records. Um, that were also I belong to you is one of my favorite songs. Thank you. I love right, that song. right. Somebody else who understands how incredible that record is. Um, I love that song, and that's what I loved about that album. She had, you know, several of those sorts of records that, like, even now, I'm kind of like, y'all were a little mean on these reviews. Like, if we're gonna if we're gonna be really honest, compared to compared to what some people were given that second album, like versus this, where it's like you're focused on trying to like fall into this narrative of her personal life that you're ignoring like the way she is singing on I belong to you and my name is not Susan like what are we talking about like the way that she was like I'm your baby son is still always one of my favorite 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 Whitney records just because of the way she is singing that track the only other person I would love to hear sing that aside from Brandy who was incredible um when she sings it is Beyonce. Like, cause it really does remind me of like what she was doing with Destiny's Child. That like double time singing in a particular kind of way. Like the syncopation. Yeah, like that. Like I really, really like I would love to hear Beyonce on on that record in particular. But even just the first time hearing that being like, yo, she doing this now? And I'm even being a kid and being like, she on this motorcycle, like Whitney he oh my God. Like what she you know, like just the fact that she's coming to us like this, like that to me was really special and it made me think about because I was at that time I was now I was loving you know Mary J Blige you know what I mean there was like there was other folks mm-hmm. that I was like really getting into that now she was doing something a little harder so you know young Garrick was totally into it and still am all right well thank you for that and by the way I agree with you said about the Whitney album just going to clarify that I agree I just have my own personal qualms yes That's no I, I love I love to hear the, I love to hear those <laughs> But yeah, Nick, Eden. I think Nick's next. Um, yeah, no, really textured answers, and I'm I'm loving this discussion. Um, I wanted to ask you about the chapter Miss America the Beautiful, and I think this chapter for me was really you really created the parallels between the lineages of Black pop artists throughout the ages, mm-hmm. um, and I think especially in an American context, the African-American mm-hmm. context, how you position Whitney as in the last um, moments of the chapter as being kind of a beacon of hope for America whilst the the bipolarity almost of her then the day before, you know, facing rumours of drug abuse and the, the lack of care mm-hmm. and, and real attention when it comes to the media betrayal, particularly when, when the isms come into play. Um, you can you can almost do no wrong in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. um, you can almost do sorry everything wrong in, in the United States when you trip up. And I think we're recently seeing that actually with Will Smith um, and and what happened over the last two weeks. But mm-hmm. back to Whitney, I think I wanted to ask you that kind of dual role that she has to play and almost every black artist has to play um, when in the American context of that, you know, patriotism, nationalism, that that figure within the American context, but then on the other hand, being seen as, you know, dirty, black, you know, like almost, oh, you, you can't even enter our spaces and, and why are you here? Um, and almost always interrogated. I really want to, how did you approach this chapter and almost... How do you see Whitney, you know, from the moment she died 
how is her legacy being betrayed in the United States under that under that lens of of nationalism and and the United States kind of context as well? Very good question, Nicole. Yeah, yeah very um, very good. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was before I even started writing this book. Um, it was really important for me to have a conversation about race um, in Whitney because I I felt like only since she's passed away have we started to really kind of sit with that and sit with that duality and sit with like yeah doing the opposite of what we did while she was alive which was like defend it defend it defend it versus that moment of like oh my gosh this was actually awful that we were doing this as long as we did and then we had this moment that we put on this pedestal for which you know is the anthem which is already so complicated as as a song um in the, in the history that it holds, but also the moment of which she did it, where you are doing it in a time of war and black, Amer- black Americans and war is a very complicated thing. And you never see it discussed in relation to Whitney being there. And there's a, there's a video that, you know, it kind of goes viral every year. Um, around Super Bowl, where it is, you know, a bunch of black men watching her seeing this in, the, in like in real time, but it's you know a VHS tape, and you're seeing all these men cry, and I think it's beautiful that that goes, you know, viral every year. But I also wonder, you know, how little we talk about how our black men and black women come back to this country broken, having having fought for a country that doesn't even care about them. But then you go elsewhere and fight for them and you lose limbs and you lose, you know, part of your mind and all these things. And then you come back to the same mistreatment before you left. And you're not the hero. You are now in the way, you know, because that's how we I mean, that's what we do to all war vets. But like you're in the way. Right. And so I started I wanted to think about that piece of it and like what that must felt like. But then also this other thing of being tasked with singing that song and I don't want to say being used, but being a vessel for, um, especially like obviously nationalism, but being a, being a vessel for um, just like unbridled patriotism that comes with like sports, which I've always found was kind of weird and kind of off, but whatever. Um, this, this, this thing that we do with, with black artists where it's like, please give us all of your soul for this for this song because we need this and we want to feel something which is why oftentimes you know it doesn't surprise me that you see a lot of gospel singers being asked to do the anthem at you know stadiums or whatever or you're seeing like you know soul singers they're the ones being asked or you know these playoffs they somehow can always go find some r&b singer that ain't been booked on bet in forever but come come to the song here because they know what kind of performance they're going to get and what kind of feeling that they're going to get out of it and what singing that song means, right? And what we want to feel from from hearing it, but never what it might feel to hear that song and know its history and then there never be a conversation around it. Or, you know, these things that we've been doing, you know, for years and years and years and years and years, which is basically telling black folks to like, you know, y'all still not over slavery? You know what I mean? Or even something of like, I wanted to also write about just, you know, a contemporary aspect, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, how 
Colin Kaepernick was being treated um, for his protest of it and sort of what that awoken in people, especially white people, in this almost like outrage that they feel now suddenly about, you know, this anthem, which we don't actually need to hear at a, we're going to see football or we're going to see basketball or baseball. We don't actually need that song performed. You know, we don't. And so, you know, I wanted to use that as a vessel to kind of talk about these other things because of the time that it was and the time that Whitney was in, which is, you know, she's doing this moment, she's being lauded for this moment, and this is now the signature moment in her career. But we then, you know, a couple weeks later went back to being like, oh, you're not black enough. You know what I mean? Like, even though, like, in that moment for her to stand there and muster up that performance and do it in the way that she did it and 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 make everybody feel the way that she did and leave all of that history over there in the past, I think is is blackness at its core. Like, so much of what we have to do, mm-hmm. no matter where we are in the world, is take all of what other people throw at us and make something beautiful out of it. You know, yeah. like that's that's so much of what I mean, not so much as all of what hip hop is built off of, which is why uh-huh. I understand when people feel, you know, they want to be a gatekeeper around other people doing, mm. you know, rap, which, you know, I'm not a person that cares because I'm like, it's an art form that you eventually want it to become what it is one day. Now, where I start to feel funky is like we have to recognize that there's privilege when other people do it. And so then they get to then be on pop radio or, you know, win the Grammy every time or, you know, go number one every time or get all of those things. And and, and everybody else does not get those things. But I really wanted to use that as a way to have a bigger conversation because there's really two distinct conversations about Whitney and race that you have to have. You have to have the one where we talked about her not being black enough. And then the one where we talked about her being too black. And this was a moment for me that felt like this hits at both of those when they merged at one time, but also Mm. really sets Mm -hmm. sets the tone for a chapter that comes later, um, which is about once we then saw her as too black. And I thought it was a really interesting way um, to have that conversation about race and, 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 and Whitney. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Um, sorry, I, I, I just want to quickly. This is a real quick one. Um, do you see any parallels between what you just outlined? Basically, the the being too white on one hand, and then being too black on the other. Like, do you see the parallels in any contemporary star? Because I'm thinking about a lot of moments here. I'm thinking about Zendaya with the dreads. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a lot right now. And Lizzo, I yeah. really want Lizzo, who you've outlined as well, like mm-hmm. in that chapter in that same chapter too. But um is there someone with that that line where they float between both um so seamlessly beyond beyond a Lizzo like that you see? Or do you see do you see it happen to a lot of eyes? Do you think it happens to only a few? Um, yeah, just talk to us about that. And like, I think some of the listeners would, would love to know some of the examples as well that you use in the book too. I think in some regard, it happens to any Black artist that moves in a mainstream space. Um, they have to deal with that at some point. Um, and part of that is, part of that is, you know, especially within our community, we are very protective of of our people, especially when we then think about, you know, this three-letter word of, of pop that is so controversial, um, despite the fact that 
black music has been popular music for so long and I'm so tired of having to say it. Um, but just even the idea of like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, you know, Doja Cat is not a rapper, she's a pop star. And it's like, she's both. The same way that Kendrick <laughs> is both. The same way that Jay-Z is both. Um, exactly. Part of what I think gets missed in all of that is we're so, um, we're so precious about these labels that it bothers me because I think often we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that these labels were created by a bunch of white folks in a room to separate us and to separate exactly. our music and to keep us in a particular kind of way. So even something is like, to me, as absurd as the word urban, as just this catch-all for anybody black making music. It's just like, well, what are we talking about? Because when I think about... Um, you know, my one 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 of my one of my one of my friends, um, Barty Strange, is having an amazing year. But that is not a man that you would say is an urban act, right? But he is a black man making music that started with black folks. But he is not in a space where somebody's going to say, "Oh yeah, that's that's urban," because it's not R and B, it's not hip hop. So when we do these as catch all as a catch all word, where I also want to challenge that because I'm like, that's only just the that's just the shift. It was black music in one era. It was race records in another era. Um, it became rhythm and blues b- very briefly. But this way that we just are putting all black people in this one category because we don't actually want to then just call them pop artists because that signifies white because people don't like to do the thing of popular can only be white. Um, and I've always had an issue with that. And so... I think about, you know, obviously Whitney is a really huge example of the tragedies of that. But I mean, even 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 Beyonce's careers had to deal with that. Even Rihanna's careers had to deal with that. Even Kanye's careers had to to deal with that. And so much of that is is our doing because we don't like how much of our stuff has been taken from us. So we do this thing of like, we have to find a way to still keep it us because we know that nobody's going to call Justin Bieber an urban artist. You know what I mean? But Justin Bieber is also not going to ever say, well, you know, why aren't you playing um, all of these people on top 40 on pop radio? Why aren't you playing? He's not going to go say that, but he is going to have a whole, um, huff and puff about not having the Grammy in the R&B category. He is going to do that. You know, so I think so much of like, you know, and in the book, I talk about Lizzo a lot because I think, you know, she's somebody who's getting it really aggressive in a way that reminds me, it reminded me of Whitney, um, just because of like the people who show up to her show is a lot of white, a lot of white girls like her. And that's okay. But why do we put that on Lizzo, but we don't do that with a lot of rappers who you go to their show and, you know, be mostly be white dudes. And, you know, it's 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 fine when it's them because we still see them in this one way, but it's not fine with these women because then we see them in this other way. And I've always found that to be really strange and really messed up. Um, and I always have to push back against it. And part of my pushback against it is sort of a reminder that all of these things that you now are thinking is like what only white people can do was was ours to begin with. And so we've been so divorced from our history because of the fact that labels have worked so hard to cut it up and separate it and divide it that now we're in this place that like anytime somebody wants to do something else, it's just like, well, I guess we don't know what we want to call Tanache 
oh, or oh, Normani. Uh. So you're trying to be like a you're trying to be like a pop artist, and it's like yes. And what's wrong with that? Because you want to be a popular artist, like of course you do. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you for that, Edom. Um. So my question is more to do with the chapter that is titled "The Undoing of Whitney Houston." So um, I know this is kind of the meat of the book um, that you kind of wanted to you wanted to write about, but you didn't want to do it in a way that was kind of what people expected from a Whitney book at the end of the day. And I think you've done an excellent job of really breaking down and holding Whitney accountable for some of her decisions in her career. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I've that really stood out for me was um, your opinion on choice of single Um So, for example, I'm going to read an excerpt where you say that after the Diane Sawyer interview, um, you believe that, um, let me read the actual thing. So you say, try it on my own sounded like the word she needed to sing to confront others where she was at the time, or at least that's what the writers were aiming for. And then you actually quote the song lyrics and you say, I'm wiser now. I'm not the foolish girl you used to know so long ago. I'm stronger now. I've learned from my mistakes which way to go. And then you kind of compare it to what was actually the lead single, which was what you're looking at and which is more of a like a, a, a confrontation to the media. And I kind of just wanted to I wanted you to talk about like um, the moments where Whitney could have excelled if she really lent into her truth and what kind of truth with regards to Whitney's story means um, mm. from you, who is someone who's actually done the research into her story. Um. You know, I, gosh, that's a, that's a hard one. You know, I don't know. I don't know if we would have ever been able to have a moment of that from her. I don't know if it's something she would have ever had the courage to do, but also the freedom, because when you think about it, especially around like, Particularly around, particularly around that moment, you know, that Diane Sawyer interview, which I think is really pivotal, is like kind of that 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 era was like the beginning of a very public downfall in a particular kind of way, where then people are people were now really invested in sort of like the the gossip about how it's coming apart versus concern about her life which is what came later you know once it was like oh now it's kind of off the rails the beginning where it was now like very clear that something was going on there was still this level of like um anger Hmm. that she wasn't just telling us um and so when i think about that particular moment on you know diane sawyer and, and i write it in the book where it's like because one thing I wanted to be really clear about was, you know, my own my own judgment of drugs didn't really doesn't really matter to the story, because I think it's important that we have a frank conversation around it, which is like people like to get high, mm. you know. And I think with Whitney and particularly Bobby and particularly that moment that I always found, you know, so striking was they didn't understand why people didn't have that attitude because they were in an ecosystem where everybody was getting high. Yeah. But what they kept forgetting was 
you are still a black person on television mm-hmm. talking about getting high. We're not allowed to do that. Yep. We're not allowed to do that. You can you can right now, you can name upwards of a dozen white popular artists who have been revered for their drug use and their partying and all of that. Can you do the same with black artists? I can. You can. I can. You can? You can? Outside of Rick James? I can with regards to Snoop Dogg, Wiz Khalifa. But, but, but I, see, I, I, see, now you get into my own politics. Because, see, I think, I think with those, I think it's, when we're thinking about weed, that doesn't count for a lot of people. Mm. And the judgment isn't there in, in a particular kind of way. Now, if one of them goes and gets arrested for weed, then they're going to get the coverage, they're going to, all of that kind of stuff. But in terms of, like, hard drugs, mm. Like getting high, high. You know what I mean. Like getting high, high, high. I, I don't. I, we don't. We don't do that mm. with black artists. Um, and and when I bring up like a Rick James, like so much of that and how people feel about that drug use is in relation to a punchline that he was a part of. You know, with the Chappelle Show. Mm. And I think when you see, you know, Whitney and not and Bobby, it was really Whitney where her drug use became a punchline of, oh, well, you're a crackhead. Mm. You know what I mean? Versus somebody like um, the Rolling Stones or all these dudes who, they were all getting high, you mm. know, singing about it and the whole thing. And nobody was treating them in a particular kind of way. And yes, some of that is also how she was presented to us. But that, having to confront the fact that like, oh, she was getting high before we knew of Whitney Houston. Like, what do we do with that? And so that's why I really struggle with the most. Is like people have a a relationship with her drug use that is rooted in the shame of her doing it and also her own downfall. But I also wanted to have the conversation around like, okay, well, you know, a lot of people like to do this, and a lot of people don't believe that they have a problem, which is, you know, that's just like how how these things work. So why was it more um, scandalized that it was her? Mm. Why was it more? Um, why did why did it, it never shifted into like care or concern? It shifted into we now have to constantly remind her. So even the times when she was um, sober, now we're going to ask you, well, how were you able to be sober? And like, and are you sure? And are you okay? And it's you know there was a way in which like. It just never went away. Mm-hmm. Like once it was out there, it then it was there always up, up until she died, and then immediately it was we want you know of course, and there had already been all these bets and all this all this really stuff that like is not complicated, mm-hmm. but part of the story that made it so tragic, which was so many people were waiting on that moment. They were waiting on that day of her to be dead mm-hmm. so that they could do that. I told you so. Mm-hmm. I knew it was gonna I knew this was gonna happen. I knew we were getting there. And it wasn't what I saw of like the encouragement that I was at least hoping that would have happened. And so when I think about the music, like which would I have loved for her to like really sing her blues? Like sure. And she did in some ways, but I also think where I really got it from her was I got it from her voice mm-hmm. and a voice and a voice changing the way that it did where you then were really now hearing this pain and also 
the strain of somebody who had damaged your voice in a particular kind of way. And so, you know, when I think of her, I look to you, her last album in a way that, you know, I understood that the focus on, you know, the, the register being lower. And so now she can't have these certain kinds of songs or whatever. Like, yes, I understand that. But I also thought like, oh, this is a missed opportunity to one, talk about mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, her voice is changing. She's still coming back to us, you know, knowing that she's not the same singer of 90, 92 or 93 or 94, you know, her height. You know, she's coming back to us and she's singing for us and she's singing through all of this pain. But also she's she was trying to get her voice back together and she did. And so she there's moments of that that we saw. But did I think that one day I'd get a song about her singing about her addiction? No, mm. because she was also not a person who believed that it was an addiction. She believed that she had a problem, mm. but not an addiction. And so her being, you know, reticent to rehab and all of these different things, even when she did go, like she was somebody who always thought, well, as long as I've got the Lord, like I'm good. Mm. And as naive as that is, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say naive because that's just me and my own stuff with religion, which I write about. But like that idea that like prayer can get me through anything, you know, that's not that's not my particular idea because I'm like, no, like if I have high blood pressure, I can't just pray it away. You know what I mean? Like I can't like I have to go like do something about it. You know, if I want to lose a couple of pounds, I can't pray that away. You know what I mean? If like I'm really upset about my job. I can't pray that it's going to get better. You know, like there's there's moments where I, I as much as I understand it, that's why that's why I use the word naive, because I'm like, yeah, you can't just like pray away, you know, um, an addiction in a particular kind of way. You can you can pray that you make it through, of mm. course, you know, and you should. But I think, you know, with Whitney, like so much of it was her own denial. Mm. Up until the very end, mm. you know, if we're if we're being honest, you know, up until the very end. Um, and that was always sad. And that's why I always wanted us to have a different kind of conversation about it. Um, the kind of conversation we're having right now um, versus a lot of the stuff that I get, which is, so when's the first time she did drugs? And it's like, well, what does that matter? Mm. And what does that change about our understanding of one, the end result, which is still going to be the same, but also what we've learned since, which is all of the pain that she had mm. and that she was running from and all of the trauma that she had that she was running from. So us knowing where she first got high or where that was or if Sissy knew or when Sissy found out or, you know, how, how much of, you know, her own habits impacted her relationship with Bobby or her relationship with Robin or her relationship with her daughter, all those things. Like, I understand wanting to talk about mm -hmm. it, but it doesn't change our understanding about what she was going through. Mm -hmm. And some of that we're never going to have because she never wanted to let us in. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. And I do think, you know, everything you said is true. And it's also, you know, it relates to the fallacy that we as black people, because over here in the UK as well, where we believe that black people don't do certain kind of drugs, like we just mm -hmm. think that we kind of stick mm. to the one that is the, the safe one, let's say. Yeah. Um, so when you see a black person doing a particular type of drug, you're just like, we don't do this. So yeah, right. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. I'm just cautious of time, so should we do two yeah, more so questions? We'll do one, or, yeah. Yeah? Cool. Yeah, so, we'll Shopee, feel free to shoot your question, man. Yeah. Um, and on that note, I just want to say that while, while I have you here, because I know you and I get the music, 
The Just Winnie album was very underrated. There's a lot of great songs in there. And also, back to... We made, I can't remember what part of the book it was. We talk about how we focus about her voice losing its power and its range. But some of my favourite vocal moments from her were in those later years in terms of her tone, her mm-hmm. runs, the expressiveness, the emotion. Like, her Christmas album. She was singing down. I don't care. Singing down. <laughs> she was. was. Right. Back to my question. So... <laughs> Just wanted to say that, because like I said, because I know we see each other on that. <laughs> um, but you know, so I want to talk about her sexuality. So in the um, that chapter, uh, My Lonely Heart Calls, mm-hmm. you speak a lot about Robin, of course. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, because obviously when Robin's book came out some years ago, that was when she finally put to bed the decades-long rumour that yes. they were in a same-sex relationship, same-sex mm-hmm. tryst or whatever. And then while some people praised her for it and some were actually happy that we, I guess, finally had the truth or we had the confirmation what we knew along, but also she was, you know, was criticized for it because, you know, some people kind of held her as being the one true person in her life that truly cared about her. They didn't set her out for money or right. like, like her family. So I wanted to ask, now that we now have the confirmation that Whitney was in some degree a queer person, what do you think that does for how we look at Whitney today? Um, I mean, my hope is that for a lot of people, they understand that this was a deeply complicated human, like we all are. Um, but you know what I what I see and what I what I hear from people who dislike that I've written about that um, part in her life is, you know, well, oh, well, it's not our business, and it's and it's like, sure, it isn't. But she dealt with the violence of a lot of people making it their business. And, and I am so clear when I use the word violent that I, because I need people to understand that that's what that was. Um, she was being attacked because she was a beautiful woman who would not tell these, you know, radio hosts who were mostly male who she was sleeping with. And they had a problem with that. And they didn't let it go. Um, and there is a really pivotal moment um, in her life that set the tone for that, which was a radio convention and she wanted Robin to come Um, and Robin came. And so you have all of these men at this radio convention now seeing, you know, Whitney and this other pretty woman walking around and they want to know what what's going on. And so then once that chapter started and once that gets back to, you know, Jersey and like folks who were already kind of was thinking and talking about it. That's how you now have um, the start of 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 a story that stuck around forever. And so I honestly, truly believe that the greatest act of love um, that I've seen extended to Whitney in a public space was Robin writing the book. Mm. Um, because when I think about you know, for anybody who has ever had to love in the dark and see that then ridiculed or um, talked about with with a level of unkindness or even if it was just like curiosity, but just the just the idea that this woman was diminished for so long as well, she was just the assistant and she was kept around because they had this little secret thing and, you know, keeping her on payroll, you know, allowed that to stay a secret when 
you are completely um, diminishing the fact that they built an empire together as friends. Mm. You know, now granted, I am going, you know, Whitney's not here to talk timeline, you know, so we have to, I, I'm, I take Robin's word for it. You know what I mean? Um, but also at the same time, there, I understand who, if there are people who are like, are you sure it ended right there and not, you know, longer or whatever? Sure. Like I get that. I get people wanting to still like kind of have that conversation. But I think Robin freeing the both of them from that, because that's 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 also what this is about. This is about freeing a person um, from this particular thing that was being weaponized against them for a very long time. I mean, that's 40 years that Robin didn't say anything. You know, when you think about how long, you know, to hold something like that, and honestly, her saying it is so that people can move on, but also I'm sure so that she can move on in a particular way, because like you then, I mean, we never really saw Robin after that. Yes, she had an incredible career, but so much of it was, I can't still work in this industry because people are going to be too worried or too concerned about this and are going to constantly ask or gossip or all this stuff. So I saw it as like this really big um, act of freedom because even even in what she wrote, I am very sure she could have written more. I am very sure she could have shared other things. I'm very sure she was, you know, extremely meticulous about what she did share with us. Um, and even even the treatment that she received from that family is still, you know, if you watch that last documentary and you see the level of like hatred that is honestly there, that is sad because it's a person who really clearly had this woman's back, really clearly also mm-hmm. cared for this whole family, despite mm-hmm. the fact, despite how, how she was being treated by them. Mm. That bit you mentioned about Whitney's dad threatening, trying to get uh, goons to break her kneecaps. Break her kneecaps. I was like, wow. But anyway, Nicholas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Homophobia. (laughs) Obviously, you talk a lot about um, overcoming, obviously, I actually, this is your first question, like just overcoming the emotional aspects of losing Whitney and you know your personal journey with Whitney um obviously being one of the last to interact and and interact in a journalistic and media sense as well and I think I want to ask you how did it open any wounds writing this book did it open up any wounds that you thought were bandaged up healed whatever Um, it might not even ever be healed because I remember where MJ was. I remember where I was when MJ died. I remember where I was when Whitney died. I remember where I was when Prince died, obviously today of all days. But um, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you, yeah, were there any wounds that resurfaced while writing this book? Because you go into the depths of the depths of the depths of this book. There's so much nuance. There's so much personality. There's so much charisma. There's so much sadness and harboring there of that of that burden as well. So yeah, just talk to me about the emotional process whilst writing some of these chapters and and even their names, you know, have quite potent names. Yeah. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about it was like, you know, so much of this was written in lockdown. So my 
anxiety and grief about us seeing death on a sort of really constant mm. basis. And then also my mm. anger around like the ridiculousness of like a lot of people um, and how they move through all of that. Um, whenever those wounds got reopened, um, they sort of were drowned out by this other grief of just like this global thing. I mean, the election, I mean, there was so much, I mean, 2020 was just so much. Um, and so having, having all of that and holding all of that, anytime any of this stuff came up, you know, I would, I would read something. I would think about a thing. I would watch something. I mean, watch, watching things were like the hardest. Um, cause I could listen. I mean, there are certain songs that I can, I still will listen to. And like, I still choke up like it, like, like clockwork. Um, but it was watching certain performances where it was like, oh, okay, I need a day, you know, but for the most part, I use it as just fuel. And that was, it was freeing in a, in a really, in a, in a really big way that I hadn't thought it was going to be. Like I thought, you know, if I'm taking the time to write it on my schedule, it'll be fine. But I didn't realize like, oh, I'm grieving on the page. You know, and so there were moments where I was writing and it was coming out and I would go back and I would read it and be like, wow, like I obviously know the space that I was in when I wrote that, but I let it rock because I felt like I'm feeling this, this is going to come out still when we're in the midst of all of this. Um, The timing of like the release was not something that was planned it was just like scheduling and like how it happened um so that wasn't something that was the forefront of my, i was not thinking of like oh this is going to be coming out at this 10-year mark because you know this book was a four-year journey um so so much of you know me putting it all on the page was really me rooted in just like trying to find my way back to like really like feeling joy even in the moments of sadness with certain records was like, I want to feel joy. I want to, you know, I can, I can, as sad as I get when I listen to, especially like the preacher's wife and especially like her last album, like I go back to the moments where it's like, you know, my favorite album, you've all read the book. So you know that my favorite album is my love is your love. Mm. Um, And so even in that, where it's like, I can be so happy, you know, thinking about all this and like not think so much about, you know, when she passed away and then those, you know, that next year, like year, two years, three years after where all of what I was writing was just more tragedy. It was Bobby Christina passing in an awful way that was similar and eerie and, you know, all of those circumstances around that, which just made this story feel so much sadder. Um, I really sat in just celebration. So being able to escape how I was feeling about you know, this election and constantly seeing black people getting killed by the police and, you know, watching folks like deny a pandemic, but also at the same time be like, oh, this thing is disproportionately killing black and brown people. Great. Let me take my mask off and go breathe on them. Um, you know, like all of those things at one time that all of that anger and honestly rage that I was feeling, I just put it onto the page. Mm. Wow. Wow. Okay, cool. Um, Nick, was that the end of your question? Yeah, it was. And it, it gave me such a great answer. You, you really <laughs> are a master at answering questions. Yeah. Oh You've definitely done the work over the years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so 
my next question was so i really i feel like i'm spoiling the book so i'm gonna kind of make it a slightly ambiguous um so hopefully you get what i'm talking about but there's something that happens in the book that you know someone describes something as a as a product let's say so i hope you know what i mean so i kind of just wanted to i don't want to spoil it i know people still have to pick up the book and read it and all the above so actually it's not that much of a spoiler are you okay with me sharing this yeah yeah yeah. so you were one of the first people to see um the whitney houston virtual tour at least kind of the um the hologram that the would be original, used. The original concept. The original one, exactly. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you talk about how you kind of were uncomfortable with the word product being used to describe Whitney Houston on stage. And I kind of just wanted you to speak on, because this is something we've spoken about in previous seasons on this podcast, about mm-hmm. when a singer passes and their legacy continues, it's almost very similar to like a... Um, how labels treat them like you know reboots essentially yeah. of their life and basically sell anything to do with them whatsoever we've seen it with prince we've seen it with michael we've seen it with um amy some, winehouse amy winehouse so many so many different artists um so i just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that of like how do we make sure that when we are talking about these artists and engaging with their work once they've passed that we keep it in a respectful kind of manner in the way that I feel like you've done in this book in particular, how do we make sure we're doing it and we're producing things that are authentic and not for financial gain? Well, I mean, it's tough because on one end, you know, there is financial gain. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when an artist passes, um, you know, the estate, they are challenged with keeping the legacy going, but also... And, and, you know, for reality is also like what streams of income can be generated. Um, while I took perfect, while, 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 when, I, when I saw the hologram and, and this, the company who created this one, which is not the one that is playing in Vegas because the estate went with a different team. This is the team that had created um, the Tupac hologram mm. that we saw at Coachella. And I remember standing um in the desert and and seeing that in real time and uh, i mean it was cool because the technology was incredible mm. and it felt real and it was trippy to like hear him say what's up Coachella and like it was his voice as i remember his voice when he was alive but it also felt really ghoulish and uncomfortable. Um, and I was at the, you know, I had covered a festival a year or two after that, and one of the holograms was, was ODB and the other was EZE. And it was like this festival was built around these two event moments. Those were not as um, well produced um, as, as the Tupac one because these cost a lot of money to, to produce. Mm. Um, and because they cost a lot of money to produce, they have to maximize the profit that they can get off of that. So that's a tricky conversation because I think, especially when we're thinking about holograms, it's, 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 a, it's an ethical conversation. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's the same ethical conversation that we have when we have 
a posthumous release of an album and pieces of a vocal become a song mm. that was not what those pieces of the vocal originally were. Um, so there is this like Dr. Frankenstein thing happening and we've seen these stories. We've seen, you know, allegations of, you know, a Michael Jackson posthumous release that it wasn't entirely him singing. Mm. Um, you know, we've seen these moments of like someone like a Prince where it's like, we know how he was as an artist that he would have not wanted us to hear these demos or these scratches of songs. Same, same for Michael too. But there's also the other reality that if you are in the state and the estate is in debt, what do you do to rectify that? There's only so many different ways you can re-release music that has already been put out into the world, especially in the digital age where I can just like play all this on iTunes mm -hmm. or Spotify or whatever. So why are you going about to repackage it for me in a CD that I'm not buying no more? Um, so when we think about when we think about a conversation around like what's respectful and what's not, it's so subjective because I am never going to be thrilled or excited or enticed to go see an artist who's dead as a hologram. It's just not going to happen. Like there's nothing about it that I'm into. But at the same time, I also recognize that there are so many people who are into that. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people who they want to feel that again. That's not me. I can, I, can, I can have that same feeling by just watching a bunch of YouTube videos of Whitney. So I don't want to go see a hologram in Vegas. To me, that sounds awful. Um, <laughs> it just does. It just sounds completely awful as an experience. Um, but if it comes to like a posthumous release, do I have those same attitudes? Not always. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, sometimes it gets funky because I'm just like... I mean, I don't really think that Pop Smoke would have did a song with Dua Lipa, but, <laughs> you know, like, if, if that's, if that's what, you know, a producer who feels like that is a wise move, okay, well, I'm going to press play because I want to hear it, but, like, I'm going to also have that question in the back of my head, too. Mm -hmm. So it does keep you from being able to enjoy it for a particular while, and I'm somebody who I grew up on, you know, we lost Tupac and then... We had Tupac all the time because we had new Tupac albums because mm -hmm. he had so much material, mm -hmm. you know, and there mm -hmm. was some of that with Biggie for a little while and then, you know, they ran out. So then they stopped. And I think that's totally okay. But like where it starts to get dicey for me is replication when it becomes like, and not just, and not just with um, musicians, with actors the same way. You've got um, Audrey Hepburn doing commercials and it's like you've replicated her voice in some way and i don't think that's cool you know what i mean mm. because it's just like i think you know you're now getting into there's a there's a there's a lack of consent there mm. that i know somebody else who owns that likeness has the consent to do but it doesn't feel good mm. to me as a music fan so it's such a hard it's such a hard conversation to have because it's like on one end you know when it comes to respect, I think that has to be an individual choice because in the state, they're going to do whatever they want to do or whatever they think is right or whatever they think is going to bring in a new fan base or to introduce them to a new audience or, you know, anything. Right. So, you know, some people would say that it's unethical to have a, a, a biopic made about somebody and they're not around to, like, speak to it. Do I agree with that? Not necessarily because it doesn't feel as gross as a hologram, but like, you know, the scale is like 
are you making a hologram? Or are you just trying to make a movie about mm-hmm. somebody? Are you trying to, you know, replicate them to then make put them in a Jeep commercial? Or are you, you know, pulling something out of the vault that's not finished and then you're having a producer clean it up and then you're throwing on a contemporary artist on it? It's not as offensive to me mm. versus that hologram where you've now had some studio, you know, recreate this person's face onto the body of an actress that you had walk around the stage pretending to be Whitney Houston. Like that, that to me is a different thing. Mm. I would rather, I would rather get um, reissues of the of of the first albums on you know vinyl or you know here's a commemorative edition with like you know, an essay or here's, you know, a covers album of like other artists covering, you know, there's so many other projects to engage a new audience. I love these remixes. Not all of them. I like the, the, the higher love remix. I thought that was really fantastic. I thought that was a good way to introduce her to an audience that allowed them to experience her without it being a song that they might have familiarity with so it can feel fresh now her core fan base is gonna look at that and be like no thank you mm. um and I, and i understand that you know <laughs> that was I mean? me and I, and I that was you you know and i get that but i also i also write about what it felt like to then watch that moment of you know kamala give her speech when they've called the election and whitney houston plays and it's like yeah it's this version of Whitney Houston that has like been updated by you know this European man or whatever like cool but like it still felt very special to like hear her voice in that particular moment you know but I didn't then my reaction wasn't oh I wish that they would have played how will I know you know what I mean Mm -hmm. it wasn't that it was like oh I I love to hear her voice now do I want to hear a bunch of those sorts of remixes I do not you know I, I I do not and that's not because I dislike them um, it's because I would just rather hear a re-release of something else mm. that would excite me more as a fan. But yeah, that idea of like respect, that's hard because I don't, I don't know how you do it when we are talking about an industry where it's still a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like at right. the end of the day, it's, it's still a business. So where I started to feel, where I feel really, I will say the word defensive, is when I hear fans being like, oh, you should let her rest and why did you need to write this book? And it's like, you got that smoke for me, but not for a whole hologram walking up and down the Vegas Strip. Damn, because it feels personal. You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to, like, introduce scholarship to a person that should have it. We don't need the hologram. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, we don't. But. Yeah, thank you, you for know, that. I'm getting spicy again. <laughs> thank you. So, this is going to be the last question. Then we're going to okay. wrap up. So, I loved the introduction. I felt like it was very heartfelt. Um, very beautifully written. Like I felt like I really felt your emotion. And towards the end of it, you speak about you kind of like hypothesize about her third act and what we sh- what she would have done, what kind of pro- project would she have taken on. So I want to ask as the last question. So like, because I have my own ideas of what I thought she, think she could have done or would have gone on to do if she was still with us today. So I wanted to ask as the last question. So what do you think Whitney's third act would have been? I think her third act would have been more movies. I think we would have seen her become um, a momager um, to Bobby Chris. I think we would have seen that. And I think that we would have, I think we would have gotten more music, but I don't think it would have been, um, 
I think at a certain point she would have started doing sort of the funner projects that we see Legacy X do. I think mm-hmm. we would have probably we would have gotten the duets album. We would have gotten you know Whitney singing some you know um, jazz standards. We would have gotten another gospel album at some point probably. You know I think we would have gotten things like that. I don't think it would have been as much as like here's the next big comeback album. Like no, I think like we would have gotten we would have gotten Whitney being really comfortable because you know. What I did love about I Look To You was you heard a vocalist who was re-energized and was comfortable. And it was the same thing that we saw on Sparkle, that she wanted it still, mm-hmm. right? After all that she had been through. And so I would have loved if we would have gotten to see more of that. Mm, right. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. I think I can speak for all of us when I say you are definitely... One of the best guests we've ever had. Oh my goodness. In the that four years we've been doing kind. this show. You are an uh, incredible speaker. And you have made us laugh. You have educated us. You've, yeah, I just want to say all the praise to you. Oh my gosh. Thank you well, so thank much. You. Thank you. For that taking sounds the... like a low-key invitation to come back at some point, so I'm going to take it. Hey, <laughs> we, we were, honestly, we, I'm sure we, I would love to have you back on. Yeah. I would love to have you back on. Likewise. I would yeah. love to have you back on. Like, even just to talk about just regular, regular music stuff, because obviously yes. we focused on the book. <laughs> but we probably could have had you just on for the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On some regular, so, regular things, yes. Definitely. You know. So, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. And before you go, do you have anything you want to let our listeners know and promote and all that stuff? I mean, well, you know, the book is out everywhere. Um, books are available two books that are out everywhere books are available which feels very weird um to say and obviously a huge privilege and you know follow me at garrett kennedy on all the platforms you could ask me questions or you know throw shade at me for being so nasty about stands but i do love i love good stands i do want to say that (laughs) i love the ones who are just so excited about the project and you know they get their streaming parties together i like i like y'all i don't like when y'all be out here trying to threaten people with violence Cause I know how to fight, so don't do it with me. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Fair I think enough. I think we'll end it on that note. I think that's how we'll leave it. Um, but yeah, didn't we almost have it all, Garrett Kennedy? It was amazing having you on the show. Thank you so much. Going to speak directly to listeners now and say thank you for getting to the end of the episode. As always, if you can rate the podcast five stars on any platform you're listening to it on, but spread the word. As always, we're trying to have a lot more of these conversations, trying to get into the real like nitty gritty of our favorite, you know, icons across music. So thank you so much for being on the show. Honestly, thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for the words you've written and just the education. Um, Yeah, it's just a massive education. So we're just extremely grateful for you being here right now. But we're going to wrap up. We're going to say thank you guys for listening and getting to the end. And as always, we're going to say peace.